We're continuing on in the book of Revelation. We've got a few weeks of this left. And we come to a chapter this morning that has some of the more graphic and memorable imagery in the whole book. I remember finding this chapter sometime in high school or college and having no idea what to do with what we're about to hear. I hope by the end of this morning you have some idea of what to do with what we're about to hear. As we gather to hear God's word, though, let's pray that Jesus would be the one speaking to us this morning. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. Amen. Do whatever you need to to listen well to these words from the book we love. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls spoke with me. Come, he said, and I will show you the judgment on the great prostitute who is seated on deep waters. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on earth have become drunk on the wine of her whoring. Then he brought me in a spirit-inspired trance to a desert, and I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast who was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, and she glittered with gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold cup that was full of the vile and impure things that came from her activity as a prostitute. And a name, a mystery, was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and all the vile things of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints, on the blood of Jesus' witnesses, and I was completely stunned when I saw her. Then the angel said to me, Why are you stunned? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast on which she rides. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on earth whose names haven't been written in the scroll of life from the time the earth was made, will be amazed when they see the beast, because it was and is not and will again be present. This calls for an understanding mind. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Five kings have fallen, one is, and the other hasn't yet come. And when that king comes, he'll remain only for a short time. As for the beast that was and is not and is itself an eighth king that belongs to the seven, and it is going to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received power, but they will receive royal authority for an hour with the beast. These kings will be of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, but the lamb will emerge victorious, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. As for the ten horns you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will destroy her and strip her bare. They will devour her flesh and burn her with fire because God moved them to carry out his purposes. This is why they will be of one mind 
and give their royal power to the beast until God's word is accomplished. The woman whom you saw is the great city who rules over the kings of the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's quite a passage, isn't it? Especially for the weekend of Halloween. Can't help but thinking that Babylon would have made a great Halloween costume for someone, right? With that title, Mother of Prostitutes and All the Vile Things of the World. It's quite a title. And the angel tells John that it's also a mystery, that all this requires an understanding mind. So if Babylon, the harlot, the prostitute, requires great understanding and is a mystery, then things might not quite be as they seem. So what is she? Who is she? That's actually what I want to spend our time talking about this morning. Who or what is Babylon? I think there are three options. Okay? We'll see if you agree with me at the end. Option one, the first. If we look within Revelation itself, we learn a few things. In Revelation, there are two women that are presented to us throughout the course of the book that are presented as women who are also cities. And they contrast with each other. This is the first. Babylon, the prostitute, who is... Uh, decked out and adorned in beautiful clothing and jewels and pearls. She is the great city that rules the kings of the earth. We're introduced to another woman city at the end of the book. The New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. She too is dressed beautifully, but instead of a prostitute, she's a bride And instead of ruling over the kings of the earth, this is the city in which God dwells, where the throne is for all of eternity, from which God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. In John's symbolic vision, these two women seem to be contrasting with one another. There is first, they are both beautiful women. They're richly dressed. But one, of course, is a prostitute. The other's a bride. One rules over the kings of the earth. The other has God's throne. One is drunk on the blood of the saints. And the other spills out streams of living water. Maybe we learn something about Babylon from this juxtaposition. Now some will get bogged down with the idea that Babylon is a woman. Of course, the patriotic Bible is going to depict all that's wrong in the world with uh, an empowered, sex-positive, promiscuous woman. But before you go there, notice too that the image of God's holy city, the place where God dwells, where all is made well, where God himself will be with us and perfect love and justice flow, is also a woman. The point is not that she's a woman, but what kind of woman will she be? And marriage has always been an important metaphor in the Bible from the beginning when no suitable partner was found for Adam, so God took a rib out of him to make Eve his perfect partner. When he awakens in awe, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so the two become one flesh as the climax of God's good creation. Genesis is clear. 
that God creates humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And those two opposites are then joined together in marriage as a symbol of what God is doing in the world, bringing together and reconciling again. Marriage was also a metaphor for Israel's relationship with God. And as we see with the bride, New Jerusalem, with the church's relationship to God as well, God wants to marry us. God wants to be united fully to us. And yet the choice remains ours. Will we accept God's proposal? Or will we chase after cheap thrills? Will we be faithful to God or run away? Will we live in the New Jerusalem or Babylon the mother of prostitutes and all the vile things of the earth. Is Babylon just that? The anti-bride? Well, maybe. But here's another option. Option two. Maybe Babylon isn't a general false bride, but a specific false bride. Maybe she's Jerusalem itself. I'm thinking back to Ezekiel 16 that we heard a couple months ago in our series on Ruth. If you remember back to that, God plays with the metaphor of marriage quite explicitly in talking about the city of Jerusalem. God says Jerusalem was like a newborn child abandoned to death by her parents. That God stumbles upon her, thrown out to die of exposure. That she hadn't even been wiped clean of her mother's blood, but was simply abandoned. And God takes pity on her loves her, chooses her, adopts her, wipes her clean, and makes her his own. God happens by later and finds she has grown and matured and flourished, and God takes her as his bride. God pours out gifts upon her lavishly, clothes, the finest of jewels, and the finest of food. God binds God's self to her in marriage. But, God says, Jerusalem chooses not to be faithful. It cheats on God. And then again and again. And pretty soon she's not just an adulterous wife, but a prostitute who has set up shop to sell herself to any nation or other God that happens to come by. And things get even worse. Because God says at least a prostitute charges for her services. But Israel gives gifts away for the privilege of prostituting herself. She lavishes gifts upon others and gives God's gifts away. God, again, uses marriage and infidelity as a metaphor for God's relationship to Jerusalem. What God's describing is the way that Jerusalem became all too comfortable worshiping other gods and sacrificing to other idols. That it seems like whenever they were facing a threat from another nation, they would ingratiate themselves to one of the foreign superpowers to ensure their survival, first to Egypt, then to Assyria, then to Babylon in Ezekiel's day. Jerusalem paid immense tributes, often out of the temple's treasury, to these foreign nations to buy peace. But they didn't just send God's gifts and money away, they also imported the gods of these foreign nations and worshipped them as their own. Her unfaithfulness was worse than any prostitute. And so God said in Ezekiel 16, judgment is coming. 
God would gather her lovers back to her bedside. God would expose her to them. They would see her for what she truly is, and they would strip her of her clothes and jewels. They would kill her and burn her house and destroy her completely. There are a lot of parallels to Revelation 17. A woman in beautiful garments, glittering with jewelry, a gold goblet in her hand, and yet, for all her outward beauty, she is rotten on the inside. An adulterous prostitute riding on the very beast from whom she gets power and which will, in the end, destroy her, stripping her bare, devouring her flesh, and burning her with fire, Revelation 17 says. Could Babylon be Jerusalem? Jerusalem, the unfaithful, apostate Jerusalem that turned away to other gods, the Jerusalem that sold herself for national security, for a piece of economic prosperity and the trade with these surrounding empires that gave God's gifts away to the nations when she placed her trust in them and began slowly to rot from the inside out. Well, maybe, but there's still another option. Option three is the one with probably the greatest consensus behind it at the moment from what I could read this week. Babylon is the city of Rome. Babylon is said to be seated on the seven heads, which are seven mountains. Could these be the seven hills of Rome? She's the great city that rules the kings of the earth. What city could claim that title more accurately than Rome in John's day in the first century? Rome was known, as most imperial capitals tend to be, for its sexual licentiousness, for its deep sexual immorality and prostitution, some of which centered around its temples and the worship of its idols. It was the city most responsible in that day for the persecution of Christians, drunk on their blood. But then there's also the way she flaunted her power and wealth like a prostitute. Rome bragged of her impressive Pax Romana, Roman peace, the enduring peace that she and she alone could grant to her subjects. She presented herself as a pillar of beauty, but she rode on a violent beast and was rotten to her core. All her talk of peace and prosperity distracted from the endless violent wars along her borders, from the oppression of so many within those borders, of the slavery and injustice, brutality and tyranny that made that supposed peace possible. Rome is beautiful and alluring on the outside, but there's a price you pay to get in bed with her. And she is drunk, drunk on the blood of the saints who refuse to go along with her self-aggrandizement. Could Babylon be Rome? Chapter 14 told us the nations were drunk on the wine of Babylon's lustful passion. Now they're drunk on the wine of her whoring. Could it be her allure of prosperity and peace and security and power and maybe even sexual immorality, which the nations are drunk on, drawn into, not realizing the beast on which she rides? Which is it? The heavenly Jerusalem the adulterous Jerusalem from Ezekiel 16, the city of Rome with all its allure of power and prosperity and peace. Who or what is Babylon? Well, do we have to pick? 
Could it be that Babylon is all these things? That John keeps things vague for a reason? Could it be that Babylon shows up riding on the beast anytime we are tempted to be unfaithful to God by the allure of something false and cheap? Could it be that any form of idolatry that presents itself as compelling and beautiful and necessary and easy but draws us like a siren to our death? Maybe the question is the more important thing. Who or what is Babylon? The angel tells John it requires great understanding. And John himself is even tempted by her as he sees Babylon. It says he's stunned or amazed. And in Revelation, this is often a half-step toward worship. He's not shocked by her horrors, but he's in awe of her anyway. And it takes an angel's interruption to break the spell. Why are you amazed? Let me tell you her mystery. Babylon has a seductive power over us. And whoever or whatever she is, John is clearly trying to warn us, is using shocking language to break her power and help us to see her as she truly is, riding on the beast with seven heads and ten horns and soon to be destroyed by it, that she is drunk and the golden goblet in her hand is not full of wine but all the vile and disgusting things of the earth. So what is Babylon that seems so alluring for you? Security, national or personal? What have we sacrificed to feel at ease in the world? On whose backs have we built walls that make us feel safe? Whose blood was shed and at what cost? Or is it prosperity and wealth and success? She is certainly alluring. All glitter and gold on the outside, worthy of any sacrifice to attain, it seems, but like a prostitute, you can never really have her. And she will always break your heart. There will always be more to crave, and you will never be satisfied and never find rest. What is your Babylon? The thing so alluring and seductive, pulling you in before it bleeds you dry, riding as it does on the back of the beast who bears the authority of Satan himself. Be warned, I think John is saying. Be careful. She is present even within the church, as Jesus makes clear in the letter to Thyatira at the beginning of the book. There she's called Jezebel, the wicked idolatrous queen of Israel. Be careful. Remain vigilant. Remain faithful. And remember that Babylon, as beautiful and powerful as she seems, will not win in the end. Even the beast upon whom she rise will rise up only to be defeated. They live in opposition to the Lamb. They go to war against him, but do not be deceived by their pretensions. They will be defeated by the Lamb because he is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. His beauty is true. His peace is for real. And his power is made perfect in weakness. The cup that he offers is filled not with vile and impure things, but with his own blood poured out that you may have life. 
The table that he welcomes us to is not a den for debauchery, but the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so in a few minutes, come to the table. Come to receive his body and blood. Come to pledge your allegiance. Come to leave behind your life of unfaithfulness and renew your vows to the one who loves you unconditionally. Come that your life may be adorned by his holy works. Come, for these are the gifts of God for the people of God, to sharpen your understanding, to strengthen your resolve, and to sustain you in the battle to come. Let's take a moment now to remember what it is we believe to be so. Then we're going to take a moment to sing about our trust in God and God alone. And then we're going to come to the table to receive the Lamb's body and blood. I want to invite you to rise with me to proclaim what it is we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.